0: Learn all about investing in real estate in West Valley City, Utah, with a combination of real estate financial planning and modeling with numbers specific to West Valley City, plus syndicated, more generalized recordings of live and pre-recorded real estate investing classes, not all of them specific to West Valley City. Be sure to stay tuned after the podcast for a message from our sponsors. Well, good morning and welcome, everyone. I am James Orr, and today we've got a crazy cool class. We're continuing on with the series about how to improve cash flow. And today we're gonna to cover the section on how to improve cash flow when we're thinking about financing your next rental property. So let's jump right in. Guess we got kind of a lot to cover. So this is sort of the framework we've been working from um, so far, we've talked about how to improve cash flow when searching for a property. We covered that in a previous class. Today, we're going to be focusing in on this section right here all the different things we can do to improve cash flow when financing our next rental property. And then, in subsequent classes or subsequent classes, depending on how you like to say that, uh, we will talk about how to improve property cash flow uh, when we talk about the strategy that we're going to use, what real estate investing strategy we're going to implement, and then how to improve cash flow by improving the property itself, and then how to improve cash flow during the marketing of the property in order to find a tenant or tenant buyer, and then how to improve cash flow when we own the property. And then finally, we'll finish up with how to improve cash flow on a property while we're renting it. But today, today we're going to focus on how to improve rental property cash flow when we're financing. And there's quite a bit to cover, because this is probably the largest section. I, I don't know if I would say it is the Largest improvement section, like like well, whether will have the biggest impact. I think some of those biggest impact things are more around strategy and maybe even owning. Um, you know, it, 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 the financing thing definitely has an impact, but I think some of the other ones, like strategy and when you own the property, and maybe a couple other ones, are larger in size. and, and, and by larger in size, I mean you have a very high probability of being able to improve cash flow by the largest amount when you think about some other things. Now, financing, there are definitely a bunch of things we can do to improve cash flow. Some of them you will choose to do. Some of them you will choose not to do just because it doesn't make sense for your particular situation. But we will cover them all so that you have good, comprehensive knowledge on all the different choices available, and then you can make a decision. All right, so what I've done which I didn't do on the graphic, but I've done here is I've broken it down into sort of subcategories for financing. So we'll talk about some sections where uh, things you can do for financing before getting the loan, uh, paying upfront instead of financing things over time, uh, changing or improving the borrowers on the loan, your relationship with the lender and things you could do with that in order to improve cash flow, changing the amortization period, uh, the terms of the loan, and then private mortgage insurance related stuff, And then things you could do with other properties because, well, I'll I'll get to it later, but things you could do with other properties to improve cash flow, And then non-traditional financing, we'll talk a little bit about some of those things as well. So let's jump right in because I got a lot to cover and there's a lot of them to go over. So let's talk first about before getting the loan. And I've broken this down into four major ones. So number one is lender selection. Can I find another lender with better fees or rates? you guys do understand that each lender is a little bit different. They may charge you a little bit higher fees. They may have a little bit better customer service. They may be available after hours to take your call. Uh, They may have slightly better uh, private mortgage insurance rates. They may charge you more in points. They may charge you a flat fee instead of a, a percentage fee. And that every lender's program is a little bit different And that's one of the reasons why when we get to the class on how do you evaluate and compare lenders, why it's so difficult to compare these lenders, because not only do they charge different fees, but they sometimes call their fees different things. So uh, one of the things you can do in order to improve your cash flow is look at different lenders and find a lender that has better fees and rates. Now, I'll point out a warning about this. Sometimes you will think that a lender has a better fee or rate structure only to find out later that they were not telling you the whole story or they were not giving you all the information you needed or there were some hidden fees that you didn't realize because you weren't asking like all the exact questions. So you gotta be really, really careful and a little bit paranoid about this. But I do think it's important that you talk to a few lenders when you're thinking about buying a rental property. And and the way that I'd like to recommend it is I'd like to recommend that you... Ask your real estate agent for their, you know, top two or three lenders that they would recommend, you know, the ones that their clients have had good experiences with and have really good competitive rates and fees. Um, And then call them all on the same day. And and you may want to add like, you know, one or two, maybe the bank, the credit union or the bank that you bank with just to kind of see where they are as well. And then call them all on the same day. Tell them what your kind of credit score is. This is the short version of the class on how to evaluate the lenders. But you know, tell them what your credit score is. Tell them you know, you'll let them pull it if we decide to go with you together. But then I'd like you to give me a, a term sheet showing all the fees and costs of doing the loan and what the rate I would be able to get is with no points. And then I think you want to sort of price it out with no points. And then if you decide later you want to buy down points, maybe you go and reprice this stuff again. But I think for the most part, you're going to price it out based on no points, and then you're going to make your decision based on that. So that's the very, very short version. There's a lot more detail in the class when we talk about evaluating and comparing lenders. But lender selection is a way that you can save yourself, I don't know, I'd say conservatively thousands of dollars. You know, in in some cases, you know, it's hundreds of dollars. But if if you're really looking at the wide range of what different lenders offer, this could be thousands of dollars. And thousands of dollars could be used to do other things like buy down the interest rate, as an example, and get a better cash flow on the property. So, lender selection is really important. I think you should focus in on that. Uh, You can also choose to select your loan by closing costs. Can you pick a loan that's going to have lower closing costs, especially if you're financing in the closing costs, you're going to be adding those to the loan uh, by looking at the different ones and saying, hey, look, you know, if I go this strategy, then I will have slightly higher closing costs. than if I go this strategy and making a educated math based decision about which one of these you should pick, because closing costs can vary depending on the loan. And some of it may be like upfront private mortgage insurance, some of it may be the the closing costs that that particular lender may charge, or the program has specific closing costs that you need to pay like certain fees if you're, especially if you're doing like some type of down payment assistance program, or something like that, those can have additional closing costs associated with them, which you may or may not want to choose that particular loan program in order to get that particular program because it has these extra fees. So just be aware that closing costs can vary a little bit depending on which program you have and compare those if you're going to consider multiple loans. The next thing about uh, before getting your loan is whether you should lock or float your interest rate. I think we talked about this when we were talking about searching for property strategies when we're searching for property, but it applies when you're doing your financing as well. Should you decide to lock in your interest rate now, and will rates go up or will rates go down while you're waiting to actually close on your loan or lock the rate finally uh, in order to get the loan? And, and this could be a, a pretty significant difference. You know, rates, rates have been on the move. I remember some clients about a year ago because it's been about a year since we saw rates jump from, you know, that two, three percent range to now up to almost seven percent. You know, I had some clients who were under contract on a property and they thought that the rates the rates had bumped up a little bit. They thought, well, maybe they'll come back down. They did not come back down and they ended up getting a pretty significant bump in their rate by choosing to wait to kind of let their rate float while they're waiting to actually close on their property. So definitely talk to your lender and your real estate agent about whether or not, you know, what's going on in the market and whether they think it's a good idea to lock your rate in right now. uh, And then you won't be exposed to any increases in interest rates while you're waiting to close. Or if you should float your rate because they think that there's going to be a short-term movement. Now realize they cannot predict the future. As much as you'd like them to, your mortgage broker is is not a fortune teller. They do not have a crystal ball. They can't tell you. I will guarantee you that rates are coming down um, because no one really knows. Sometimes we think that things are going to happen and then some world event happens that kind of derails the whole idea, or maybe they were just wrong about their prediction. Um, but, you know, I could totally see a real estate uh, agent or a lender telling you, Oh yeah, we think rates are coming down. The fed's going to you know, make an announcement on Tuesday. And between when they, um, you know like make this prediction and Tuesday comes along a country attacks another country and it throws a whole bunch of chaos into the mix and maybe the, the the announcement that they thought was coming does not come and there's a lot of uncertainty in the marketplace and that causes race to go up so we never really know what's going to happen and so there's always some inherent risk which is just part of life and so you just need to deal with this and think about it in some cases it's better to, to lock it in some cases better to let it float All right, and before getting the loan, here's another one related to financing. You know, can I offer less on my offer and still get it accepted to reduce my purchase price, which will ultimately lead to a lower monthly payment, which will lead to improved cash flow? So can I offer less on the property I'm buying? Uh, to improve my purchase price. That's just something to think about. Talk to your real estate agent to see if that makes sense in your particular situation. In some markets, it's not, doesn't make sense. to You're not gonna get the offer accepted if you offer less. In some markets, you can offer less and still get your offer accepted. So it's definitely an expertise thing with your real estate agent in that market as to whether or not you can offer less and do it. And if you remember my general rule of thumb, for every $10,000 less that you offer, it works out to be approximately $50 per month in payment. Now that varies with interest rate and that's based on around a, I don't know, four to 6% sort of interest rate. Um, it's a little bit less, a little bit more depending on what it is. But that's the general rule of thumb. For every $10,000 less that you finance, it's about $50. More if it's a higher interest rate, a little bit less if it's a lower interest rate. All right, so those are all the things you can do to improve cash flow before getting the loan. Now let's talk about paying up front instead of financing. This is the group about things that you could pay for instead of financing them in. And related to that is seller concessions. Seller concessions are when the seller agrees to contribute some money to help you with your closing costs. And you get these by asking for them as part of the offer when you make an offer to buy a property. It's part of the negotiation for you to buy the property. So can I ask a seller to contribute seller concessions to help buy down my interest rate? Now realize for them, it's like giving you a discount on the property. So this may be competing with you offering less. In some cases, you may say, look, I'll offer you your full price, but I want $5,000 in seller concessions. And basically, you're saying, I'm going to offer you $5,000 less for the property because $5,000 in seller concessions comes right off of what they would net when they sell you the property. So by asking for seller concessions, though, now you've gathered some money that you can then use in order to pay for some of your closing costs or maybe buy down your interest rate or something like that where now you don't need to finance if you were going to finance some of your closing costs in, or if you were going to have a slightly higher interest rate because you weren't going to use money to buy down the interest rate, then you could have an improved interest rate if you ask for seller concessions and you use those to buy down your rate. And we went over the example of this in the previous module on how to improve your cash flow while searching for properties. I give you an example of what the actual numbers were for a specific day on a specific price of property with a lender here that was local to me. And yours will vary a little bit, but realize that I gave you an example and I showed you how much it would cost to buy down your interest rate and how much that would improve the monthly payment on it. So realize seller concessions can be a pretty big one if you're willing to ask for a seller to give those to you. And they're willing to do the discount in order to do that. In some cases, in a hotter market, especially, in some cases, we might be willing to pay above what the seller is asking in order to get them to include seller concessions so that you can finance in the improvements you're doing. So as one example, uh, some of my clients in the past that bought new construction properties where, let's say the property was a $400,000 property. They might go to the builder and say, look, builder, I will agree to pay you 405 dollars but I want you to contribute $5,000 to my closing costs. Why would they do that? Because now you can finance in the seller concessions that you could use to pay for your closing costs and stuff like that. So you would have you could come to the table with less money, which might be overall better for your return on investment calculation, which you got to run it both ways in that spreadsheet. Go to the, the world's greatest real estate deal analysis spreadsheet and run it by asking, uh, getting seller concessions included, even if it means raising the price or not getting seller concessions and having to come to the table with that money for closing costs. Okay. So enough on seller concessions. Uh, you could choose to pay your closing costs. Now, some people are thinking, hey, I will go ahead and finance my closing costs because I get this better return on investment. But by financing your closing costs, it does slightly decrease your cash flow because you are borrowing more. And so your monthly payment goes up. Even though your overall return on investment may be better, your overall cash flow may be worse. And so this is a calculation you need to do for yourself. You need to decide by running this in the world's greatest deal analysis spreadsheet. You need to go figure out and say, look, if I decide to pay for my closing costs up front, maybe my overall return, when we look at the four different areas of return, appreciation, cash flow, debt pay down, and cash flow from depreciation, the tax benefits part. We're not talking about reserves here, but those do come into play. But really, we're looking at all those returns. We're saying, look, overall, if I have to bring less money to the table, my return on investment looks better. However, my cash flow number might be slightly worse. And so by choosing to pay for closing costs up front, out of pocket, instead of financing them, it may actually improve your cash flow. And if you're really, really focused in on that cash flow number, this is a way for you to improve cash flow, okay? All right, let's talk about private mortgage insurance. Remember, private mortgage insurance is insurance that the lender asks you to pay to protect them in case you default. The idea is this, the lender says, look, I really want you to put 20% down in order to finance this property. But you really want to finance this property and only put 5% down. So they say, I will reluctantly agree to make you a loan if you only put 5% down. However, what I need you to do is I need you to hire this third-party insurance company and I want you to pay them their premiums, their insurance premiums, such that if you default on the loan, they will make me whole. If I need to go sell this property and I have a loss because you didn't put 20% down and there's not this cushion of equity protecting me, if I need to foreclose on you for me to be able to sell it, get out of the property and make all my money back, including all the attorney's fees and probably selling at a slight discount and you know all those different things. So there's usually a 20% cushion of equity if you put 20% down. If you're only coming in you're only putting 5% down, they want you to go pay a third party insurance company that will protect them in case they need to sell the property because you defaulted, they foreclose and they need to get their money back. And so you say, I will agree to that. I will pay this monthly fee or an upfront fee in order to have this insurance company protect you because I'm only putting 3.5% down or 5% down or 7% down or 19% down. Anything less than 20% is typically what you need for PMI, what they require for PMI, okay? So there's a couple options with PMI though. In one case, you could choose to pay PMI monthly. Uh, you know, Some of these private mortgage insurance companies will allow you to pay your private mortgage insurance monthly. And some of them go away after you've gotten back up to that 20% equity. Not all of them. For example, FHA never goes away. But some of them will go away. They'll say, okay, we can now remove PMI once you've gotten to the point where you've got 20% of equity when you get to 80% loan of value. So you could pay monthly as one option. Or the insurance company says, hey, look, instead of paying monthly, what you could do is you could pay a one-time upfront lump sum payment instead of monthly. And if you're concerned about cash flow on your rental property, you know you don't want to have this 150 to 250 dollar a month private mortgage insurance payment on a you know 500 thousand dollar property somewhere in that ballpark. And it varies a little bit. There's a lot of things that go into PMI, which we'll cover in the classes on PMI. You can go into the the control panel in order to watch the video I have on that already, or we'll do another one here coming up soon. So, if you don't want to pay that $150 to $250 a month in PMI payment because it's impacting your cash flow and you'd rather not have that negative cash flow, you could say, Look, I've got whatever it is, $4,000 sitting here. I would rather take this $4,000 and I'd rather pay it upfront in order to have uh, that monthly payment for PMI go away. And so, cash flow improves by, in this case, whatever it is, $150, $200, $250 a month by paying a single $4,000 payment. And then you got to calculate. Is that a worthwhile return for me? Is paying $4,000 now to get $200 or $250 better cash flow a good return for me doing that? Okay, And so those are the things to consider paying up front instead of financing. Another thing that we think about for paying up front instead of financing is paying a, a fee in order to get a staggered interest rate loan. This is very popular right now because interest rates have gone up so much, a lot of builders especially are doing something like this where they're saying, hey, look, we will go ahead and and buy the property from us, pay full price, and we will uh, prepay some interest on your loan so that in year one, you have a significantly lower interest rate than we have right now. In year two, you have a lower interest rate, but not quite as low as year one. And then year three, it goes up to whatever the regular interest rate was. And what they're really doing is they're prepaying your interest on that loan in order for you to not have that for the first two years. So I'll I'll put some numbers on it just to give you an example. And this may not be exact. You need to go talk to your lender about what they might be. But let's say interest rates right now are 7%. So you go to the builder, you say, look, builder, I want to go buy this property. It's a $400,000 property, as an example. And I'm going to pay you. um, And and the interest rate I can get with the lender is 7%. So the builder says, look, I will go ahead and buy down your interest rate. And it's kind of like staggered for two-year plan. And they'll say, in year one, you're going to have a 4% interest rate. And that'll be the interest rate for for the first year. After that, you're going to have a 5.5% interest rate in year two. And then and then after year two is done, starting in year three, you will have that full 7% interest rate. So your cash flow, if you were buying this as a rental in year one, would be significantly improved. Most of the time, a lot of people are doing this as a nomad strategy where they're moving in. And so the interest rate for the first year while you live there is considerably lower. And then the year afterward, the second year, it's lower, but not quite as low. And so your cash flow on your first year as a rental, if you decided to do the nomad strategy, and then convert to a rental after living there for a year um, is improved for that first year. But then after that, it goes back up to 7%. And some people are thinking, well, interest rates will surely come down in the next three years. Well, maybe, maybe, maybe not. We don't really know what interest rates are going to do. They may come down in three years. And then at which point you could probably do a refinance out uh, you know, to kind of change your rate, a rate and term refinance to change the rate on the loan if it comes down low enough to do it. And remember, if you were living in the property and then you moved out and now it's an investment property, it's a very different kind of like rate that you might get on investment property than if you got an owner occupant, it's usually higher. So you got to kind of consider these things when you do that. Uh, In general, I'm not saying they're bad. In general though, I I don't like the staggered rate idea. I mean, if you're only going to hold a property for a short period of time, I could see it being beneficial to do uh, for a very brief period of time. But I'd almost rather... They take that money and give you a lower rate for a thirty-year term. That way, you can keep that loan for thirty years. Although some people are like, but James, I'm going to be refinancing. I'm going to sell the property because I'm going to reuse the equity. I'm going to re-leverage up. I'm going to do a cash-out refinance, or I'm going to go and uh, you know do a rate and term refinance when rates come down. So why would I go buy down the rate for thirty years if the rates are higher than what I think I'm going to get? Well, we don't know what the future is, and so I think that's one of the big concerns about whether you do this for thirty years or not. Maybe I should do a separate class on that idea. To be determined and then the other option which i was just sort of talking about is you could buy down the rate completely so you could say look instead of doing this staggered rate where i get a lower one for year one then a slightly higher one for year two and then it goes to the full rate after year three and by the way there may be a three-year plan out there by the time you get this maybe like they you buy it down for year one year two and year three and then it goes up to the regular rate year four i mean who knows these, these kind of programs change all the time so just realize talk to your lender find out what they are. Uh, so the, the other option though is you pay a fee and you buy down the rate for the entire 30-year period. And we talked about this when we talked about searching for properties. I gave you that example of how much it costs to buy down the rate for the entire 30-year period and how much improved cash flow you got by doing that. So that could be a way for you to do this too. So we kind of covered these options. So to recap, paying up front instead of financing, we talked about seller concessions, getting the seller to contribute some money to help cover your closing costs or using that to buy down rates, paying the closing costs up front instead of financing them, prepaying PMI instead of paying it monthly getting that staggered rate or buying down the rate for the entire term of the loan. Those are the options for paying a front. All right, let's talk about changing or improving the borrowers. So let's talk about changing you. You know, some people come into this and they're so anxious to get excited that they don't take the time to really improve their situation first. And I understand it because, you know, getting in on a property, that first one and getting that property, the, the kind of asset base growing for you, it does make a huge difference. But so does improving your credit score. So if you're coming into this and you know you weren't super concerned about your credit score before this and you kind of let it do whatever it needed to do and maybe you were late on some stuff and maybe you had some you know se- serious setbacks that caused you to be late like medical bills that you couldn't afford or whatever it was you know like, like taking the time to improve your credit score can have a very significant impact on the interest rate you get and on the private mortgage insurance rate you get if you're getting PMI so it is worthwhile for you to take the time and improve your credit score. And a lot of the things about your credit score are counterintuitive, meaning you might think, oh, I'll just close down this credit card because I'm not using it and that will improve my credit score. Maybe not. And so there's there's a lot of subtlety and nuance to it. And you should probably talk to an expert, You know, find out if your lender is an expert at improving your credit score, or if not, maybe ask them if they have a recommendation for someone who can help you do your credit score and improve it. And I'm not talk about doing the, the sketchier stuff to improve your credit score. I'm talking about legit things like making sure you're paying on time, making sure you have your ratios in the right spots, uh, making sure you have the right mix of credit if you're doing it that way. You know, the the legit ways to improve your credit score, not like you know, <laughs> not paying on anything and then negotiating, paying off all your stuff. Like I'm not talking about doing that, like the uh the the scorched earth version of that. I'm not that's not what I'm referring to. So improving your credit score could actually improve what you're able to get on your interest rate for your loan, and also what you're able to get for your PMI, which both of those can significantly improve cash flow on a property. So it is worth focusing on credit score. Now, if you have a relatively weak credit score, you may want to consider talking to a friend or family member, which I'm not even going to go into the details of this because it takes a certain type of love and trust for another person to come in and co-sign, be member of an of a loan uh, to in order for you to buy a property. But if you can get your friend or family member to agree to this, good for you. Um, and that could possibly improve your interest rate, get you better interest rate on the loan. Um if they have better credit than you and they're a better borrower, and you know, in a lot of cases, getting your rate on PMI, if you have more than one lo- let more than one borrower on the loan, it does lower your rate. That's one of the calculation parts of uh, a PMI. So adding another friend or family member to your loan when it makes sense and it legitimately legitimately makes sense. Talk to your lender about this. Uh, that could actually improve your your overall cash flow. It could improve your credit score, it could improve your interest, your uh, PMI rate, and so it could improve cash flow on that. Now. On the other end of that spectrum, let's say you and your significant other are about to buy a house and uh, I'll, I'll be nice. You have awesome credit. Your significant other has not been the most responsible with money and they've had credit challenges in the past and they are really hurting your interest rate and they are really hurting your private mortgage insurance rate that you're getting on the property and in and in, and you could qualify for the loan otherwise you know you've got the good job and you're the one that has you've been responsible with your money and you can qualify and you can get the good rate there so you might want to consider even though you love your significant other you may want to consider getting the loan without them on it so that your overall cash flow and your private mortgage insurance or your overall cash flow but your your loan interest rate and your PMI rate are better and you therefore have cash flow. You know you do not need to voluntarily take a worse cash flow position for love. You could be practical about this. Maybe talk to an attorney even about adding them on as soon as you close on the property. You know, deeding them onto the property. Talk to your attorney about whether this is legal and and how to do it correctly in your state. But you could maybe go get the loan yourself, buy the property yourself solo, and then add in your significant other for the sake of love after you close on the property. That way you get the benefit of the better cash flow, the better PMI rate. And they also then own the property with you. If you're doing that. And as an aside, you know, some married couples will go ahead and buy properties independently. They'll have one buy a property, then the next one will buy the property, then the next one will buy a property, then and they keep alternating back and forth because when you're doing non-owner occupant financing, you are limited in the number of loan spots you can get with 30-year fixed rate financing. And so a lot of them will try to go ahead and do 10 independently, just all in their name, and their spouse will do 10 solo in just their name. But definitely talk to your lender about if this is your plan because I've heard that some lenders don't like it if you're filing joint tax returns They will sort of count them all together. But if you're doing independent tax returns, then they may say, hey, look, you know, you've got your own tax return, you could do 10, you're doing your own tax return, you could do 10. And so do some loan planning with the help of a good lender um, in order to do this, which which reminds me, we talked before about choosing a lender, you know, based on their kind of rates and fees and stuff, and realize I personally would be willing to pay a small premium not a crazy large premium, but a small premium, not necessarily choose the cheapest lender. If this lender is providing additional value, like this idea of loan planning and improving my credit and things like that, that's worth something. And so paying a small premium in order to do that makes sense to me. Okay. Uh, now I've gone off on that tangent. So removing a borrower could actually help you get a better interest rate, get better PMI. And so you may want to consider for the sake of love, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to, to for the sake of love, leave them off the loan and then put that back on so that you guys get overall improve your situation and your, your kind of cash loan property. And then using a similar idea to adding the borrower, you could partner with somebody who is a loan partner who could just get better loan terms. So the idea is maybe you form an LLC. And in the LLC, you are providing either the deal or the deal and some of the capital or the deal and all the capital. And you're bringing in a third party who is a super strong qualified borrower, and they are becoming one of the partners in the LLC one of the owners in the LLC, and they're the ones getting and getting and signing for the loan, um, and that could be a better way for you to do it than if you were to go do this solo, get the loan, or if you guys were both to go buy it and you know, kind of like a you know, both of you on title solo. You know, so go talk to your attorney about structuring this and and how it would work, but and talk to your lender about how this would work with having a loan partner and whether that gets you better loan terms. Okay, so we talked about that. Now let's talk about your relationship with the lender. And I will tell you, of all of the strategies we have here, these are probably the ones I've seen the least, actually get seen implemented the least, and probably the ones that have the least impact. But they do sometimes come up, so I wanted to mention them to be comprehensive. So here are two different things that discuss your relationship with the lender. Number one, some lenders will allow you to get a small, pre- a small discount on your interest rate if you set up automatic payments. And it's usually on an account that they have in their bank. So you go to your local credit union, and your local credit union may have some program. They don't all have this, but this is why I said that this is one of the ones I've seen the least. But some credit unions may say to you, hey, our rate is 7%. However, if you actually set up auto pay on the checking account you have with us, then your rate becomes 6.875 for the life of the loan. And so you may say, that makes a lot of sense to me. I'll go ahead and use the account that I already have with you that I'm going to use to pay on this loan. That makes great sense. I'll I'll get an improvement on my interest rate. So that's one option. Some credit unions or banks or whatever it is may say to you, hey, look, if you have a investment accounts with us, you may get a slightly better interest rate if you have a savings account, a checking account, and your investments all with us and your mortgage. We might give you a small interest rate benefit by being a, a ideal customer that has a, a much larger relationship with you. Or they may actually say, hey, look, if you have more than X number of dollars on deposit with us, whatever that is, $25,000, $100,000, you know, $500,000, then we will give you a, our preferred lending criteria, tier, whatever it is in order to do that. You tend to see more of those with commercial loans, although maybe you see it with with residential loans. Again, I don't see this very often, but I've definitely heard about people getting these benefits. I had one client at closing told me about their, their lender was giving them some type of preferred rate for doing some of this stuff. So check with your lender, see if that's appropriate for you. All right, change the amortization. Amortization has to do with the period of time over which your loan pays off. If you say you have a 30-year amortizing loan, that means that by making regular monthly payments, the loan will be paid down to a zero balance after 30 years. Or if you have a 15-year amortization, it means that a 15-year loan by making the regular monthly payments will be paid off down to zero at the end of 15 years. Okay, so when we talk about amortization, I'm talking about kind of like the the period of the loan or how the loan is amortized to do that. So, So for example... With an interest-only loan, the loan is not amortized. You are only paying the interest that is due, and the balance of the loan is staying the same throughout that period of time. So you may be paying just the interest, no additional money toward the principal or the amount that you owe on the loan, and so the balance of the loan is not going down. Well, by paying interest-only, that does improve cash flow. So you could choose if your lender offered this and you were willing to do this to say, look, I'm not willing to have a 30 year amortizing loan. I want to have an interest only loan then you'll always owe the same amount unless you pay extra and reduce your principal. But I want to pay the same amount and only pay the interest on the loan, which would improve cash flow. If you think about it, this is part of our deal alchemy class. But if you think about the four areas of return we sometimes talk about, the appreciation part of the return, the cash flow part of the return, the debt pay down part of the return, and the the cash flow from depreciation or the tax benefits part of return plus the reserves. But if you think about those kind of primarily four areas of return, what we're doing by doing an interest only loan is, we're trading, we're using deal alchemy in order to say, hey, look, instead of taking the return we're getting from paying down the loan, the amount of money we'd be paying in principal, we're moving that return up into the return quadrant for the cash flow. So we're moving, we're saying, look, we're taking a zero return on debt pay down and we're moving that to the cash flow portion of our return. So that could improve cash flow by doing that. So you could do an interest only loan if you wanted to do that instead of having the loan be paid down. There are some rare loans out there, less common these days, but I wanted to do include this to be comprehensive, where you can pay less than the interest that is due. So if you think about it, you have a $400,000 property, a $400,000 loan, you're paying 7% interest on it. They could calculate out how much interest is due in that month. It's 7% you know, times the 400,000 divided by 12. That's how much interest is due in that first month. But if you decide to pay less than that amount, then the balance of the loan increases. It goes up. You no longer owe $400,000 after the first month. You might owe $400,200. And then the next month, your interest that is due is actually higher. And so if you have this negatively amortizing loan, the loan balance actually increases each time you make a monthly payment because you're not even paying the full amount of interest that is due, which improves cash flow. Oddly enough, right? You're basically taking that debt pay down part of the return. And instead of making it zero with like an interest only loan, you're making that negative. And then you're moving that return up into your cash flow part of your return. Because those things, they're, they're kind of like opposite ends of a, of kind of like a balance where if one goes down, the other one goes up. Right? Think about it that way. So in this case, if you were willing to take a negative amortizing loan, which most of the time I don't recommend this because the amount you owe in the property is actually increasing each month, it's kind of a weird position to be in. But you could actually do this in in order to improve cash flow. All right, rate from loan term. So I don't know if you realize this, but if you get an interest rate on a 30-year loan versus the interest rate on a 15-year loan, the interest rate on a 15-year loan tends to be lower than the interest rate in a 30-year loan. So if you go to a lender and you ask them for quotes for both a 15-year loan and a 30-year loan, the 15-year loan will have a lowest interest rate. It'll have a higher payment because you're paying off a, a the same loan amount over a 15-year term. So the amount you're paying in principal goes up considerably. So the payment amount on a 15-year loan will be much higher. And the payment amount on a 30-year loan will often be much lower. However, the interest rate on a 15-year loan will be lower. And the interest rate in a 30-year loan will be higher. OK, so you could go to a lender and say, I'm going to change my loan term in order to change the interest rate, which might impact your cash flow on a property and may be beneficial for you. Uh, you know, it's it's not going to be beneficial from a pure cash flow perspective, probably change from a 30 year to a 15 year loan, but it might actually improve your overall return on investment numbers. Although you would have to do the math on that. And I think most of the time it would not, but you can do the math and see. OK, uh, loan term. So this is part of changing the amortization. Can I change the loan term? For example, instead of getting a 30-year loan, you could try to get a, ready for this? A 40-year loan. Because 30 years is not long enough. If we spread this thing out over 40 years, that's better. Which they're offering them now, it's my understanding. There are some options for getting 40-year loans. They're rare still, might be hard to find. But I've heard of people getting these 40-year loans. I, I I, I think my friend Jason sent me over an email talking about 40-year FHA loans, if I'm not mistaken. I was like, that's crazy. So anyway, if you got a 30-year loan, the payment on that would be higher, hard for me to even say, 30-year loan would be higher than if you got a 40-year loan for the same reason that a 15-year loan would be higher than a 30-year loan right? If, you were doing, if you're trying to pay off a $400,000 loan over 15 years, the payment for that's going to be higher than if you try to pay off the same $400,000 over 30 years. Well, you could do the same idea if you go from 30 years to 40 years, your payment will actually go down. And so that would improve cash flow. Something to consider. All right. So we've talked about changing the amortization. Let's talk about loan terms. These are Loan terms are sort of like the, the things that go into the loan. So amount borrowed. Could you put more down, larger down payment to reduce the amount that you're borrowing? Or could you buy a less expensive property, put the same percentage down and reduce the amount you're borrowing? Because by reducing the amount you're borrowing, that would improve your cash flow. So change the loan terms. Either put more down or reduce the amount that you're borrowing by buying a less expensive property. You can also adjust this by adjusting the loan to value. Can I put more down to improve my interest rates? by doing a lower loan to value. For example, if you put 20% down to buy an investment property, they will quote you a certain interest rate. Uh, Let's call it 7.5. However, if you put 25% down, if you put 5% more down, not 5% more of the 20%, but five points more, so 20 to 25, I know that's confusing. Put 25% down instead of putting 20% down, then they will give you a lower interest rate. It may go from 7.5 to 7%. It's that significant. So a lot of times when you run the math, if you've got, if you've got the ability to come up with extra down payment, one of the biggest jumps you tend to get is going from that 20% to the 25%. And they, they do usually have jumps for you know 25 to 30 and 30 to 35. They just tend to be a little bit smaller. But there's a big risk, or at least perceived, it probably is true, but there is a big risk um, reduction for them by having you go from 20% to 25%. And so they will often give you a better interest rate from going from 20% to 25%. And it can be significant. This could be a significant way to improve your cash flow from two perspectives, right? First of all, you're borrowing less because you're putting more down. And secondly, By getting more down, you're getting an improved interest rate, which will further improve your cash flow. So you get like a double positive benefit by putting this more down in order to go from a a certain loan to value to a higher one. And by the way, this applies to from you know, putting 3.5% down FHA loan to maybe putting more down or putting you know 5% down on a conventional loan to putting 10% down. So this could also improve it that way. You got to call up your lender and find out what the difference is at that time for you and your specific credit score and your specific loan amount and see what the numbers are. And they change all the time. So I can't give you like a fixed number. It's always this. You got to call your lender to find out, but it can improve it, okay? And another option... Is instead of getting fixed rate financing, which I'm a big fan of, being able to lock in a interest rate for 30 years makes a lot of sense for me. You limit any type of interest rate risk you have moving forward. And even though everyone thinks, hey, interest rates, they're they're really, really high right now. They're not really, really high right now. You know, I, I think I did this. Uh, I did like a confidence meter, an interest rate confidence meter, where I, I told you what percentage of the time in all of the history we have for 30-year loans have interest rates been above this thing. And I, I, I don't remember the exact number. I probably should go look it up before I quote it on here. But it was something ridiculous, like the interest rates were higher than 7% 60% of the time or something crazy like that. Okay, you can go look up my confidence. My uh, I think it's called interest rate confidence meter that I built, and you can put in your interest rate that you're getting right now, and it will tell you his, over a historic time what percentage of time the interest rate was higher than that. And people think, oh, seven percent—that's really high. No, it's not really high. It's not even the halfway. Or right? you know, half the time it's been more than that. Okay, um, so could interest rates go back down? Absolutely. Could interest rates go up from here? Absolutely. And so, getting a thirty-year fixed-rate financing eliminates that upward risk you have and locks you in. Now, there's a a great benefit of getting these 30 rate fixed year financing because if rates do come down, you can choose to pay a little bit of money and ratchet that rate down. You could go from 7% back down to five or three if it goes back down that low, okay? But you don't have the risk of it going up to nine or 11 or 15 or 18, which it has gone to, okay? So those are things you can consider. Oh, so why was I telling you this? Because you could choose to take an adjustable rate interest rate in order to get a lower rate right now in order to improve cash flow in the short term. But you're doing that, but you're adding in the risk that interest rates will go up higher than what you could have gotten fixed right now. So as an example, I'm gonna make up numbers. Let's say you could go and if you got a set, you could get a a 7% 30 year fixed rate financing right now, if you got a loan for 30 years. Or the lender says to you, or right now I could give you 5.5% if you take an adjustable rate mortgage where the rate adjusts every year. And it can't go up above nine, as an example. And you're like, wow, you know, the cash flow difference between 7% right now and 5.5% with an adjustable rate mortgage, 7% fixed rate for 30 years versus 5.5% where it adjusts every year. Or maybe it's fixed for five years. They get you with this, right? They're like, hey, it's fixed for five years and then it adjusts every year after that. You're like, oh, that sounds great. But there's all different programs; they vary. Okay, so but let's say, for the sake of this argument, let's say it adjusts every year. So they say, "I'll give me five point five today, uh, but it can adjust every year." You're like, "That sounds really good. You know, I'll, I'll get better cash flow, and rates are surely going to go down. They're just kind of like got this this like bump right now because we're trying to get inflation under control. And as soon as inflation gets under control, we're going to drop rates way back down to three. I'll refinance out. This will be a win all the way around, maybe. And let's say next year." The rates are now at nine and yours says, okay, it's going to bump up and maybe they have a cap on how much it can bump up each year. And so maybe, maybe the cap is a point each year. So it goes from 5.5 to 6.5. Like I'm still winning year two. It's, it's still lower than what I could have gotten if I did fixed rate financing that year. And you got another year and now rates are 11 or maybe they're still at nine. And so your rate goes up from 6.5 to 7.5. And they're like, whoa, this is higher than what I could have gotten two years earlier if I had just picked the fixed rate one. And so maybe it stays there for five or six years and it kind of keeps bumping up that one point a year 7.5 becomes 8.5 until eventually it becomes nine. And now you're two percentage points higher than you were. Sure, you got improved cash flow for that first year or two or three, but then after that, it's actually been higher. And it could go back down. So you could get a benefit of of adjusting back down on you uh, for doing that. Maybe that's part of your adjustable rate mortgage program. But realize that there's a risk to taking these adjustable rate mortgages. And you need to decide if you're comfortable with that risk or if you'd prefer to lock in some type of 30-year fixed-rate financing, eliminate that risk from your portfolio. And we'll talk about this when we go into the the risks of real estate investing and how to mitigate those. This is one of the ways to mitigate it. This particular risk is to get these 30-year fixed-rate financing things. And then if rates drop down, you could benefit by paying a little bit of money and actually refinancing, do a rate and term refinance and lower your rate then. Okay, so we talked about loan terms, the amount borrowed, loan to value and adjustable rate. So about private mortgage insurance, we covered what it was earlier, but you can choose to not pay private mortgage insurance. How do you do that? Well, what triggers private mortgage insurance? Putting less than 20% down. So you could choose to say, I'm not going to put less than 20% down. I'm not going to do a 3.5% down FHA loan or a 5% down conventional loan or a 15% down non-owner occupant investor loan. I'm going to choose to save up a little bit more, get to the point where I have at least 20% down, in many cases, maybe 25% down, and not have to pay PMI at all. So can I put more down to eliminate or even reduce? Because if you put more down, even if you don't get rid of the PMI, it does reduce the PMI, the the private mortgage insurance premium that you pay. The premium on someone putting 3% down versus putting 5% down is different. It costs you more in private mortgage insurance if you only put 3% down than if you'd put 5% down. Why? Because there's more risk to the insurance company in case you default. That's, that's as simple as it is, okay? Or if you aren't willing to put more down to get rid of this, you could choose a loan program that does not have monthly PMI. As an example, if you have VA eligibility, the ability to get a VA loan, you served in the military, um, there's some other eligibility requirements, but that's the primary one. If you served in the military, the VA loan does not have monthly PMI. They have a upfront like guarantee fee or VA funding fee that acts sort of like private mortgage insurance. Basically, they're they're collecting this funding fee that, and then the then the VA is actually guaranteeing the loans for the lender. So if the lender says, "Hey, look, they defaulted. They only put zero percent down, and they defaulted on this," the VA then guarantees the lender and pays them for that. So that's why there's a VA upfront funding fee. It acts like a version of PMI. It's not called PMI and it's not monthly. So it improves your cash flow and you can finance it, but that's kind of of how the VA thing works. So you could choose a loan program that does not have monthly PMI and do it that way. All right, so that's the eliminate PMI option. We talked about this before. You could prepay PMI. You could choose to pay for PMI in one upfront Lump sum payment instead of monthly, and that would improve your cash flow. You pay four thousand dollars instead of two hundred dollars a month. Cash flow improved at a a cost of four thousand dollars upfront. And the other thing, which we also talked about, is improving your credit so that you can get better PMI rates and better interest rates. So it can improve your credit. Improving your credit can actually impact cash flow in two ways. All right, so that's all the stuff about private mortgage insurance. All right, let's talk about other properties. So, if you think about this, a lot of times we're focused in on how do we improve cash flow, and we're we're like laser focused on how do we improve cash flow on this property that's about to buy that's right in front of me right now. But sometimes it's better to take a step back and say, okay, I want to buy this property. However, I'm really most concerned, and maybe this is not true for you, but I think it's true for most people. I'm really most concerned about my overall cash flow picture, not just cash flow on this one property, but if I can improve my cash flow overall, even if it means the cash flow on this property is slightly worse, but I could actually do it with all, like all of my properties combined, it is a net improvement, a significant net improvement, hopefully, then that's better. Because really, we don't care if we're making $100 a month or $200 a month uh, on a particular property, we care what we're doing overall on all of our rental properties combined that's really what's going to get us to financial independence. So if you think about that, we really should ask some questions about, well, what about other properties we own? So for an example, can I do a cash out refinance to either buy or refi another property? So imagine for a minute, you have a lot of equity in another property and you only have 5% down to buy this property. Or maybe you have, let's make, the, make an easier decision. You only have 15% down to buy this property. But you have way more than that extra 5% on another property sitting somewhere else. You could go and say, look, I'm really overall concerned about my cash flow. And while this one property that's got a lot of equity is cash flow and great, it might be better for me to go put a, home equity line of credit or do a cash out refinance or, or do something on this other property that I've got a ton of equity in to get the extra five percent or maybe an extra 10% down payment. So I can get from I can get from where I was at 15% to all the way to 25%. So that the cash flow on the property I'm about to buy is way improved. I would I would hurt my other property that I had a little bit by doing this money and borrowing against that one, but it would mean such a big difference on the other one that I'm about to buy that it is worth doing. Think about it that way. You went from having a 50, let's say you're doing a non-owner occupant loan, an investor loan. So you'd have 15% down, you'd otherwise have PMI on that one. And the interest rate in a 15% down loan is tends to be pretty ugly. But if you go and you put an extra 10% down to get up to 25% down overall on that property, now you get rid of PMI, and you get that great interest rate bump from going from 20% to 25%, going from 15%, to 25% even bigger. And so now you have an improved interest rate, you're borrowing less, and you're getting rid of PMI. The cash flow improvement by doing that may be so much better than the cost of doing the HELOC or whatever it is over here on this loan. And it may be worthwhile for you to do that. That's just sort of one example. There may be another example where you literally have a free and clear property. You don't have a mortgage on it at all, and it may be better, easier. Mathematically, better improved cash flow wise to do a cash out refinance on that one, take some or all of that money and then use that to buy the next property in order to make that one better. Or maybe even to do a refi on that property. In some cases, you may, may choose to take money from another property that you have, maybe a free and clear one, and get down below 75% loan to value so that you could do a better rate and term refi on that one. And you're kind of moving equity around in order to improve your cash flow position. Just things to think about. Okay. And I think I covered this next one with my first example, cash out refi for a larger down payment. So we talked about borrowing money from another property where you took money out of that in order to get from 15% down all up to 25% down. And so it may make sense from an overall perspective to do it that way. Um, And then the other thing to be aware of is there are limitations once you get to a certain portfolio size on your ability to do cash out and rate and term refinances. For example, and this changes all the time, so go check with your lender about what the current rules are. But, for example, my understanding is that right now, and I've not done this recently, so you don't want to check with your lender make sure that even what I'm saying is appropriate for this instant in time. But right now, my understanding is that if you have 10 loans on 10 properties, you cannot do a rate and term refi on any of your investment properties. You need to have less than 10 in order to do that. So, before you go buy your 10th property or before you get yourself in a situation where you're going to limit what you can do, look at your whole portfolio and see if there are changes you should do before you buy your next property. So should you do a rate and term refinance or cash out refinance on a property before you buy your next property where it makes sense to do that because now you have less properties. We sometimes see this, although I'm not sure it exists anymore, but sometimes we see this when you get over four loans. The rates when you have less than four loans is one thing. The rates when you get over four loans might be something different. So check with your lender about rules that might apply to you and, and ask them the questions like, okay, so I'm thinking about doing a rate and, re, rate and term refi in the future. Is this going to affect me doing that? And, and these things can change. So it may not be, they may not tell you something that applies a year or two or three down the road because there may be a, a change of policy, but using the rules right now, are there limitations on that? Okay. And then I have a note here not just improving cash on the property you're buying, but on other properties before you can't easily fix it later. So we may not be talking about the property you're buying. We may be talking about your whole portfolio and fixing anything that could potentially, you want to paint yourself into a corner by buying this property now and not taking care of the other stuff ahead of time. That's what we're talking about. All right. Second to last slide non traditional financing. If you have cash, You could just pay cash for this property and avoid financing altogether. Someone says to me, hey, James, so interest rates are at 7%. You know, I don't want to pay the 7% because, you know, the interest rates are really ugly and the cash flow gets really ugly. What can I do? And I tell them, you could avoid the interest rates altogether by paying cash. And are like, oh, no, James, you know, that would take forever. You know, I only have, you know, 5% saved up. I would need to save up for whatever it is. And that would take forever to do that. And, you know, I don't want to do that. Then I'd, I'd be way far behind. Well, having done modeling on saving up until you have enough to buy free and clear properties and how long that takes to be financially independent, doing that strategy where you buy rental properties free and clear using the same savings rate you'd have if you were buying rentals much faster. Um, you know, doing the you know, 5% down or 20% down or 25% down. So I can compare the time it takes you to be completely financial independent, saving 5% down, buying owner-occupied properties, moving in, living there for a year, converting those to a nomad when you save up another 5% to 20% down where you buy non-owner-occupied properties to doing 25%, where you buy non-owner-occupied properties to saving up and buying properties free and clear. The extra time it takes to buy the properties free and clear is nowhere near how much extra they think it is. It's a relatively small difference to buy properties free and clear. So, if you're really, really paranoid about this, if you're like, look, 7% interest rates, cash flow is really ugly in my marketplace, even with all the things that I can do in order to improve cash flow, it's not the end of the world if you save up and put more down, whether that's free and clear or 50% down in order to get to the point where you don't have state of cash flow. Like, it, it doesn't take that much longer if you do that strategy. It's, it's more discipline and you got to do some stuff with the money in the meantime, but think about it this, well, I'm not going to go into this. There's, I mean, there's a whole class coming on this idea of speed versus the speed of 5% down or 20% down, or 25% down versus buying properties free and clear. And probably another class eventually on 50%. Down. I just haven't run the numbers on putting half down, which I just need to do. Right. So it's just, it's not hard. I just need to take the time to do it. All right. So you could pay cash which would significantly improve your cash flow, which is one of the reasons why it's not that much longer. Because when you buy a property all cash, it makes up a huge amount of ground to you having the amount coming in that you need in order to be financially independent. When you buy a property that you put a little bit down and you only have a small amount of cash flow, well, that doesn't contribute that much to you being financially independent. But when you buy a property free and clear and you have all of the cash flow you know, minus your your kind of taxes and insurance and maintenance and vacancy, but you don't have a mortgage payment, which is usually a pretty large chunk of that, and your cash flow is very, very large. You don't need very many free and clear properties to get to the point where you're financially independent. Whereas if you buy ones that have small amounts down, 5%, 10%, 20%, 25% down, then the amount of cash flow you get on those is a lot smaller. You need a lot more, or you need a lot of time for them to build up to the point where they have cash flow going. So, Math is really interesting. All right, I've gone off on a tangent long enough on that one. So you could pay cash. And would it be better to do that as a consideration for you? You could choose to seek out private financing. You know, talk to grandma and grandpa at the Thanksgiving table and say, hey, you got any money in CDs? I'm doing this real estate investing thing. Interest rates right now are 7%. What are you earning on your CDs? I'm getting 2%, 3%. Okay, well, how about you loan me money at 4? I'll pay you 4% on your money there. So you can structure private financing to get better terms than you could by going to a bank or all the creative financing things like owner financing, where you negotiate with the seller to get like purely bespoke financing terms where it doesn't matter what the market's doing. You and the seller come to terms over what interest rate they're going to charge you, whether that's. 11% a premium or 3%, a big discount or 0% in some cases, right? Depending on how you structure it. So you could do owner financing like that. You could do subject to or wrap financing. Subject to is where you buy a property and you leave the existing loan in place. You're buying the property subject to the existing financing or wrap financing where they have an existing loan and they're wrapping that with a new loan and they're making payments to the underlying loan and you're making a payment to them and they're keeping the difference. Or the lease option family, acquiring properties on lease option, where you're agreeing to lease a property from somebody for a period of time, and you have the rights to buy that. You have an option to buy it in a year or two or three or four or five or ten in the future. Or maybe it's a lease purchase where you have a lease in place and you have a purchase contract that goes out a year or two years or three years or four years or five years or whatever it is. Like that whole family of things. So would a seller consider some type of creative financing could be a solution to improve cash flow? while we're talking about financing? And would those be better terms than you can get now from a traditional lender? Things to consider. Or the last one, loan assumption. You know, we have all these loans out there that got 3%, sometimes less than 3%, sometimes 4% interest rates. And now interest rates are up at, you know, sixes and sevens. And so, and so the, the loans that they had before are attractive and some loans are assumable. For example, FHA loans. The challenge I think we're running into here with these loan assumptions, we've got all these really attractive loans out there. But unless you can get a big enough discount where the amount you need to bring to the table is relatively small, you're assuming the loan at what their current balance is. And since property values went up so much, we have this huge amount of equity that a lot of these sellers at least perceive that they have. And so you need to either pay off that equity or structure it in such a way that you're getting a big enough discount where the equity is a reasonable amount to pay in order to acquire these properties. But these could be attractive ways to structure it if you can overcome some of the challenges we have associated with that. Okay, so that's it for all the traditional financing. So in conclusion, optimizing cash flow is about maximizing income and minimizing expenses. And I have a typo. Uh, Correct the typo. All right. It's about maximizing, oops. All right, it's about maximizing income and minimizing expenses. Your mortgage tends to be a very large percentage of your expenses on a rental property. It doesn't have to be, but it tends to be, especially if you're putting very little down. And there are several things you can do that impact the size of that expense, how big your mortgage payment is. That's largely what this class was about. Making financing a prime lever for improving cash flow. So if we can fix that very large percentage of your expenses, That allows us to significantly improve your cash flow, which is why this becomes such a big, robust area to focus on. It is better, in my opinion, to take time to more holistically look at and improve on all the various aspects and stages of what improves cash flow. And so this one was a one that had a lot of different options, a lot of different ways to improve it. Not necessarily all the biggest ways, although some of them could be pretty big, but not all of them are the biggest ways, but they could be an improvement for you. All right. So that's it. Hope you enjoyed the class. This has been James Orr. Bye bye for now. With home prices up, mortgage interest rates up and rents up, but not quite enough to counteract the higher prices and interest rates. Cash flow on rental properties in West Valley City is harder than ever. Book a call with the Real Estate Financial Planner to apply our proprietary 88 strategies to improve cash flow on your rentals. See the show notes for a link to